Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. Joy Keys, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also, you can check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Well, I am honored today to be speaking with someone across the pond, as they would say. Um, she is a wonderful uh, author. Um, she is from Somali, but she's based in London right now. She's the author of Black Mamba Boy and The Orchard of Lost Souls. She's received both the Betty Trask Award and the Somerset Maugham Award. And in 2013, she was named as one of Granta's Best of Young British Novelists. Her work appears regularly in The Guardian and the BBC. Um, but today we're going to be talking about her third novel, her latest novel, The Fortune Men. Uh, wonderful book, and um, I think she's on the line. Nadifa, are you still there? Hi, Joy. Hi. Thank you so much. I'm so glad we connected. We had a little technical difficulties, um, people, but we're, we we're did. together now. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you um, for taking the time. It's um, e- e- early evening there, right? It's like, what, 4.30, 5.30? Exactly. 4.30, yeah. just after, yes. like probably 4.40 now. Yeah. Wow. So cold, you have Christmassy. Cold and Christmassy. Have you bought presents for everybody already? Yeah. You have? Nope. As a Muslim, thankfully, I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> right. So now what do you do around the holidays when it's not your holiday? So I like some aspects of it. I think um, I'm quite glad that I can skip the very commercial kind of madness around it, but it's always good to see people, um, have a, a nice, you know, Christmas lunch somewhere with someone dear to me, um, invite family over. So it still uses the time to to socialize, but without some of the trappings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is your third mm-hmm. book. Tell us a little bit about this story. So this is based on a real-life miscarriage of justice that took place in 1952, um, to a Somali man, Mahmoud Matan, who my father knew. They were both Somali sailors. They moved to Britain in 1947. And Mahmoud's life took a very different trajectory to my father's. He married a local Welsh girl, had three sons with her, stayed at, at, on land rather than my father, who kept going to sea. And Mahmoud was accused of a murder he didn't commit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, your father was a sailor, I, I understand, correct? Yes, yes, and Black Mamba Boy is about his early life. Yes, that's that's what I was going to say. I also read that you had a chance, I guess, to speak with the family of the real-life uh, person, and they wanted you to change the name um, of one of the characters. Can you talk to us about that experience, yes. talking with them? Did you talk to them, or did somebody else on your behalf? Yes. No, I did, because during the research process, I I read all of the archival material, 
the newspaper reports from that time. But I really wanted to speak to the individuals um, whose families were involved. And I was mm-hmm. able to contact one person from each of the families. So it was the murder victim's uh, relative who asked me if it was possible to change the names, um, to give it some distance from her real family. Yeah. And so I did. Um, and it also allowed me then to give myself a bit more fictional distance um, from the real events and to, to go somewhere new with the characters. So this has so many different um issues that your book is dealing with, you know, the role of a man, you know, what is his role and what makes him a man, you know, what makes a person a woman, uh, her role and the types of jobs she should take. Uh, One of the characters, uh, one of the female characters, she actually joins the services um, very surprisingly to her family. Uh, Even today, we have a lot more women in the services around the globe, but it's still um, something Mm. that people are fighting for, you know, women on the front lines. That's something that has been um, a big issue. Is it the same way in London um, with women trying to fight on the front lines for for the UK? So I think I'm not completely up to date with um, what the situation in the military is for women. But in the 1940s, um, it was definitely not combat that they were allowed to take part in. So I know you're referring to Diana, who volunteered for the RAF, the Royal Air Force, before mm-hmm. the Second World War broke out. She yes. was a Jewish British woman who saw what was going on in Germany after Kristallnacht in particular and was so outraged by it that her and her husband volunteered before the war to, to to work in the Royal Air Force. And then, of course, just a year or two later, the war broke out and he was sent to North Africa where he disappeared. He was never able... They were never able to find his body and she came back to Cardiff to give birth to their first and only child. So it was a huge sacrifice for her, but she struck me as someone very strong, very, you know, whatever naysayers would have told her to do, you know, stay at home, think of other ways of contributing if you want to, but be, you know, be ladylike about what you do. I think she she ignored all of those um, mm-hmm. comments. Now, you have two worlds coming together. You have the world of Somali and the UK, uh, and you deal with them very beautifully, because even in the environment, like, the Somaliland, the heat, the no water, uh, yeah. the family, the walking, um, and here and then in the UK, that environment is like wet and damp. I feel it's dark. I <laughs> yeah, feel gray. Like there's clouds yeah. and gray. You know, I'm not there, but in the writing, yeah. that's what I'm seeing and, and, and feeling, you know, like almost like in my bones. Um, and I think because of the main character, Good. yeah, his conditions that he had to live in, but um, he was like, uh, how do you say, uh, he was not the normal, he didn't take the normal path uh, that his family probably no. wanted him to take, you know. Do you think that was the same way with your father, that he didn't take the normal path uh, um, that his family thought, or was it something my father different? Had, my father grew up in a much more difficult circumstance with less um, financial stability, it was just him and his mum growing up, and she was very young and working in factories and very sort of low-paid work. So from a very young age, from six years old, six years of age, my father was looking after himself in many ways. While Mahmoud, I think I got the opposite impression, which is that he was the youngest child of a big family who Mm -hmm. lived in Hargeisa in Somaliland, where I was born as well. And he had a lot of stability, and it was partly maybe that feeling of not having... 
enough um, independence that drove him to, to leave, while my father had a lot of independence, but no way of really making a living. So my father just kept trying all sorts of different things to do that, while Mahmoud could have stayed in Hargeisa, worked in his family's businesses, got yeah, married, his father. Mm-hmm. You know, lived his life. Yeah, in a very stable way, but it was his own choice, his own nature that didn't want him to do that. Well, I think he was in the hierarchy of the family. He was the youngest, and he just felt very impatient. Yes. What I got is that he's impatient because he had to wait until the brother, yes. other brothers got married, um, and he yeah. he felt he's always been suffocated. The brother. Yeah, he was the junior brother. Now, in terms of Somali mm. families, is that a true depiction? Um, if you're the youngest, then you have to wait until the other siblings um, get married? Generally, yes. And I think historically, yes. Mm-hmm. I think nowadays, because there's so much, um, it feels as if Somalis are scattered all over the world. So that family structure is not as tight as it used to be. And someone like Mahmoud is more typical of the way that we live now, where people just go off and make their own decisions, marry whoever they want to, when mm-hmm. when they want to. But if you're in a traditional Somali family, yes, there is a sense of the girls look after the house, help the mom, the boys, you know, look for stable income. And, you know, the, the eldest are the ones that make the decisions and the youngest ones are the ones that are, you know, looked after by the older children. It's not as strict as maybe some other African communities where there does seem to be a real hierarchy within the family. But it is there in some shape or form, for sure. Well, I've had other authors with Somali backgrounds, and they talk about the clans, and they talk about knowing your clan. Um, was that something that was yeah. given to you as a youngster, knowing, like, even several, like, five, ten generations back what your clan was and being able to, like, recite that if somebody needed to um, <laughs> to find help yeah. somewhere? Like, you know, it's is that still happening today? Less so if you grow up in the diaspora like me. So I know it. Sort of. I can recite my dad's just about with some kind of mistakes. Mm-hmm. And it goes back 17, 18 generations. Mm-hmm. But I can't imagine my nieces who've, grown, who've been born in this country knowing it. So I'm sure some, one of us will write it down. Mm-hmm. So we'll have a record of it. But it won't have the importance that it had. But in, um, in Somalia, and in Somalia, Somaliland, it still definitely has importance about where you live, about the kind of opportunities open to you. Um, it can be still quite a nepotistic culture where people give jobs to those close to them um, in relation. So in Somalia, it definitely matters. But if you're Somali and living in the U.S., U.K., then not really, unless you really want to keep it alive. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the book um, is taking place, you know, further back in history. But one of the things that it's dealing with, and we still deal with, unfortunately, today is racism um, and how mm-hmm. the other I mean, people are labeled the other, you know, um, here in the U.S. and mm. in the U.K., that they're upset that you know, people are immigrating uh, to to their country, taking their resources, um, marrying yeah. their women. Do you see that now as a young yeah. person in the U.K. still happening? Oh, definitely. I don't mm-hmm. know how young I am anymore. <laughs> but, um, yes. <yeah. laughs> what? I, what? I am young at heart. So you, you're, yes, you're young at heart. <laughs> what do you think can be done yeah. about this issue? What What do you think can be done about this issue? What, it's getting what needs worse. to be done? I'm not sure because it's now so bad. I think that that hostility to people like me who've been here for a really long time or people who have just arrived, the hostility is so strong. And coming from the government as well as just ordinary people, 
I don't know if you're aware, but we've just started having more uh, crossings by refugees um, into Britain from France across the mm-hmm. English Channel. Okay. And there was a really awful incident where I think 24 or 27 individuals died, including women and children. Mm. And you'd think that the instant reaction would be one of sorrow. And for many people it was, but there was also people gloating over those deaths and people trying to stop the lifeboats reaching other immigrants and refugees. And so we're, we're at a point now where that xenophobia, which has been here the whole time I've lived in this country, is now, I think, much more toxic and more mm. dangerous. And what I do you think? You asked what could be done to stop that. Yeah. I don't know. I wish I knew. I think that. I think there's a real div- division now. I think there are British people of all sorts of different backgrounds who are committed and aware of the problems and are committed to changing them. And then you have this other half who maybe acknowledge some of it or, or completely pretend that there isn't any issues, and they are the obstacle. And they're the ones who think that now, if you're black or a minority of whatever kind, that you have advantages, that you are advantaged over white men in different opportunities or employments. So it's irrational, but because it's an emotional belief, it's very difficult to shift. Yeah, it's very visceral. Same thing here in America. That's why we had the last president that we had. And you saw what was going on with that. And we have our prime minister. Yes, it's very similar, and mm-hmm. um, it, like you said, it's yeah. illogical. It's not really based on fact, um, but it's uh, emotional. Yeah. One of the things, though, talking about emotions, you know, when immigrants come to other countries and they're having to deal with this trauma, I, I would consider this is trauma, um, the, you know, attacks yeah, either emotionally, physically. They have ways of, of dealing with it, not always, and this is a generalization, but one of the things that your main character does to sort of stick it to the man, if you will, is he does a little <laughs> shoplifting here and there. You know, he's like, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna yeah. do this right here in front of you, uh, and this is my way of getting back. Are there other things that you've heard people trying to do to try to stick it to the man because they're angry at what's happening and you just get frustrated? I think that they can withdraw. Um, so that they live in communities where people are like them, same culture, same language, same everything, and they can create a sort of alternative world for themselves, mm-hmm. which, you know, in comparison to some of the other strategies isn't so bad, but can make life for their children quite complicated because then they're living within a world within a world. Um, but other people, I think, really struggle to make sense of their position in society and can have you know, they can deny some of the things that they experience and try and push it away or reject even discussing it. I've seen that happen. It's very difficult, I think, to get a healthy way of dealing with it. I think that's something that even in your book, uh, one of the really craziest parts is Berlin, the character Berlin and Mm. his friend, the the Inuit guy, they were in the circus, but he didn't even know that that's what he was doing. And that was, uh, what, in the 20s? What what year was that? Even earlier. Even earlier, so he arrived right? in Berlin. Uh, he arrived in Germany in 1905. Okay, earlier, yeah. And yeah. they they made him, they put him in the circus, and he was talking about being measured, uh, yeah. all parts of his body, and they were. In they didn't train describe them as circuses. They were sold uh, to the spectators as human fairs, where mm. people from all over the world would be exhibited, 
um, and it was part of, you know, partly educational, partly spectacle. But because of the ideas, you know, around at that time of the very socially Darwinist racial hierarchies um, that were aimed to prove West or European superiority over colonized mm-hmm. peoples, it, it was a very dangerous place to be. And many of the people who died um, from illness and various things while taking part in these shows from foreign countries, their bodies were stolen they were put on display or their body parts were traded with universities and museums. It was really quite grim. Yeah, it's something that is a horrible history that people mm. try to deny. I mean, here in America, people would, you know, at, at a later date and time, you know, people were being lynched and p- parts of their yeah. people would keep yes. the sexual yes. organs of men um, yeah. or, or women in jars uh, as a form of uh I I, I've like, seen, yeah. Yeah, you, you've seen that. and um, I have. And America was a big hub of these human fairs as well, mm-hmm. um, especially when they would have, um, it was the famous case is Otabenga, who was put on display in the Bronx Zoo. Mm. Um, and he ended up, he was a young man from what is now uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, and he ended up committing suicide in America a few years after his experiences of um, display and being kept away from home for so long. And it's a very tragic story that Pamela Newkirk has written on. Um, well, it also but, reminds yeah. me of uh, Sarah Bartman, um, you know, yeah. I think it was called the Venus Hotten Tat was another Hot name. Hot, yeah. So it's a long history. Yeah. Well, was in the 18th century. Yeah, that's before your book time even, you know, it's yeah. something, I think, I mean, even I remember in the Congo, um, there was a story of uh, soldiers chopping off the hands yes. of yeah. supposedly the enemy, but then it became a game of using the hands as um, trinkets, and, and, and uh, like, this is a victory. They were supposed to only be chopping the hands off the dead people, but they started chopping hands off the live people. And yeah, um, the soldiers yeah. were the soldiers were using them as money and uh, trinkets oh, of great. you know it, yeah it was it's, it's, it's the world has brutal. a crazy it's twist crazy. yes yeah <laughs> a crazy it's twist. incredibly brutal but talking about history you learning the oud talk to us about that so I'm it's very I'm very rusty at it now I've not picked it up for a good while but I started learning it in 2012 from um, a lovely Somali musician and composer, a master musician called Hudeli. Mm. And we met um, when we were both going to a book festival in Hargeisa, and he was performing there, and I was doing a reading there. And we flew back, flew, flew back to London together. He, lives, he lived only a few miles away from me, so we traveled together. Mm. And we became really close friends. He became a surrogate father to me. And he said that he'll teach me the oud, so I'd go to his house generally on Fridays or Sundays, actually, um, and practice with him. That's amazing. And I think uh, he, he was full of stories. You know, he was someone that influenced my novel a lot because it's such a small world, and he was the same generation as Mahmoud and my father. So it wouldn't be – I could still use him for research, and he'd con- connect people with, to connect me with other people to talk to, and then the whole culture and that that the atmosphere of those young men in Britain and, and across the world was something that he knew he knew intimately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he was a big creative influence for me. Now, if I say the name Claude McKay, I understand you're very into his yeah. work. What does that mean? Very much. And, and 
And why what do you like mean? his work? I think he's so surprising. He was born in rural Jamaica, um, I think at the end of the 19th century, and was that, that a really interesting mixture of a working man. You know, he worked in jobs such as the railways, and uh, he was also a stoker like Mahmoud and my father on ships across the Atlantic. But then he was this bohemian artist, a modernist artist who was doing really interesting work. His first novel, Home for Harlem, grew out of conversations he had with Leon Trotsky, the communist Soviet. And Trotsky said, oh, as a communist, why don't you write about the conditions of uh, working class African-Americans? Mm-hmm. And he, he went away and wrote this really funny, bawdy book. And in hindsight, it was written in the 1920s, but it's so modern. It's as if history's caught up with him. Um, there's a gay ballroom scene in the novel, there's cocaine, there's, you know, all of these things that other people who were, talk, you know, were interested in talking about the, the African-American community in the U.S., they were generally very controlled and restrained and censored in what they'd write about because of the way that it might be perceived by a hostile society. But McKay threw that to the side and just wanted to write something truthful and beautiful and challenging. And I think, yeah, that's, that's something that I would love to do as well. Have you had any backlash because of this book? Because some people might say, are you, are you, what side of the story are you on? You, you understand? Because people I still think, have very yeah, strong feelings. I, they do. And I think to me, it's very obvious whose side of the story I'm on. I'm on the mm-hmm. side of Mahmoud and also on the side of the murder victim and her family who were also, they, these two families were destroyed yeah. by what the state did. One person was deprived of the justice of finding the killer of her sister found guilty, and the other man lost his life for something he didn't do. So it was very clear to feel empathy for them. Um, but you'd be surprised. The more novels I write, the more I'm surprised at people's responses and understandings of what you write. When to the writer, it feels very obvious what the purpose of something is. But I think what I'm noticing is that people read novels to feel good. That's what they're looking for. Is something that makes them feel good about themselves. Um, and that's not my aim. My aim is to be as truthful as possible. And sometimes those two things are in contradiction. Mm-hmm. What is the first book you remember reading and really loving? And, and, and just like, I have to keep this, I could read it a couple times. So as a child or as an adult? As a child, sorry. <laughs> as a child. I think because I, I came to England when I didn't speak any English and I couldn't read or write and I, had, I hadn't gone to school because I was too young for the Somali schooling system. So I arrived in Britain and the first day of school I ran home immediately. Um, but then I stayed. But I do remember a period of time where I couldn't understand or be understood by the people around me. Mm. And then it's probably once I started to read or be able to you know, tell, you know, read the alphabet and read books that I started to feel something more comfortable about being in Britain. Yes. And it was a book, I remember a book about a cow, <laughs> a cow <laughs> called Dawn. Um, and I don't remember the title of the book, um, but there was something, I guess it was because it was written with so much empathy for an animal. Um, and that made me realize what literature can do, that you can write about anything um, and make it interesting and make people feel something. Do you remember your first job you ever had? Oh, yeah, I remember it clearly. I was 16. And it was a children's clothes shop in Kensington, High Street Kensington, which is West Central London. Mm. And it was really badly paid. And it was, the manager was a really miserable man. And I lasted about six weeks before I was sacked. 
<laughs> That's all six weeks. <laughs> but then I, I started working soon after in libraries, and that was a much better fit. I, I worked in libraries for quite a long time. Um, and so when did you know that you could be a good writer and that people would want to read your books? Like, at what point did that come? I think maybe now. <laughs> it's taken a long, a long time to feel any confidence around it because the first book was such a fluke. It came out of a relationship and collaboration with my father. So it wasn't as if I knew I wanted to write or, you know, was desperate to be published. I wasn't. And it's was just because I spent so much time working on this book that I thought, let me try and get it published so I can at least sort of do something I can put on my CV with it. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I wasn't, it's taken me a while to convince myself that I'm someone who should be a writer rather than being someone who occasionally writes before moving on to something completely different. What's coming now up I, next? I do feel. Now you feel yeah. better. At the third do, book. The yeah. third book, people, she feels better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It takes time. It takes time. Well, that's good. Stay yeah. humble. It's always good to be humble because, <laughs> you know, it, 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 um, it, it makes people um, love you more. If you have, like, you know, attitude, trying to be a diva, then, you know, yeah. people kind of, you know, want to dismiss you, like, what, whatever. But when you're humble, And it's really, really bad for your own work because yes. that's when people start writing badly or start not being edited properly because there's mm-hmm. too much ego. Mm-hmm. But I think it is, you know, some people get into their rhythm at the sixth book, the seventh book, and I think that should be the way that people perceive it. It's not something that you just do once and get, you know, amazing at it. Do you, if you had a superpower, what would it be? Mm-hmm. Superpower? Um, ability to materialize anywhere that I wanted to. So oh, not, So not so much time travel, but distance travel. If I okay. want to be in Zanzibar right now, I just, you know, spin and end up in Zanzibar. That would be great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you had $100, what would you do with it? Or I guess in your case, 100 pounds. What would I do? I think I'd give it away. I think that would hopefully, because I could, it's quite easy to spend 100 pounds, but if someone gave it to you, I think it'd be really nice just to give it to someone who needs it mm. immediately. What's your favorite Somalian dish, food dish? It's a sweet um, called halwood, and it's incredibly sweet, and it's made of spices such as cinnamon and cardamom, and it's got a jelly consistency, um, but it's delicious. And me and my mum have been eating tons of it recently. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. What's next for you? Um, you, What's your next book? Are you already started writing? Do you have any ideas for that? Yeah, I'm trying to. So it's forming in my mind. I've written the first few pages. Um, and it's set in London. It's a contemporary story about Somali women living here. It's a family, two sisters and their mother. Um, but I don't really know what the story is, so that's coming to me. But I'm moving to the U.S., to New York, to teach at NYU. What? COVID Yay! allowing. Yay! Yeah. Yes. COVID allowing. <laughs> so, oh my COVID God. allowing. Yeah. It's got really bad here. So we'll see what happens. So you're going to try to do that in the spring, teach in the spring at NYU? From, yeah, from late January. Excellent, excellent. Well, mm-hmm. thank you. I'm so sorry about all these crazy technical things. Don't worry, it was really to fun blend. talking to you. 
<laughs> Thank you. I'll try to blend them all together. And um, okay. when you come to the to the U.S., um, hopefully you get the next book started, and you can come back and talk yeah. about that. And and you'll be here, yeah. so we won't have to worry about all this. Exactly. <laughs> Where are you based? I'm in Philadelphia. I'm right next to New York. Right. Perfect. Yes. Okay. Yes. I'll come say hello. Well, thank you, and I hope you have a wonderful weekend, and please stay safe, okay? You too. You too, Joy. Have a great holiday and new year. Thank you very much. All right, I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Yes. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Um, just got off the phone with author Nadifa Muhammad. We were talking about her book, The Fortune Men. I'm going to be giving away some copies of her book, so you want to follow me uh, on Twitter, at Joy Keith. Also, check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Um, don't forget, if you missed the beginning of an interview, you want to catch up, you can check us out on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, as well as Google and here at Blog Talk Radio. Thank you all for your support. Oh, and also you can make donations to PayPal, Saturdays with Joy Keys uh, at PayPal. Um, All is welcome, even a little bit, $5, $10, whatever you have to offer is great to help the show keep going. And um, I'll talk to you soon. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.